Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. From New York City, good morning to you all on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg TV. I'm really happy to say that the National Economic Council Director, Larry Kudlow, joins us now in reaction to the payrolls report. Larry, always great to get your thoughts on payrolls Thursday this time around. And I think everyone just wants the initial reaction to the jobs report and what it means for the next fiscal package. How do these numbers shape the fiscal effort in Washington over the next several weeks? Well, look, first of all, it's a spectacular number. And it helps the overall situation enormously. So you know, that's really the key point. We've created a lot of jobs in the last couple of months, and the trends continue. I, I want to say one thing. I was listening to that earlier conversation. I don't think people understand that relationship. The, the rescue package that the president led with bipartisan support in Congress and the PPP that Secretary Mnuchin uh, fostered and implemented it's the temporary layoffs, John. It's the furloughs that are coming down. We kept people connected to their employers, okay? They did receive assistance, but we kept them connected so that as the economy reopened and the businesses reopened, roughly 80% of small businesses reopened. So we saw it again today. I mean, 63.5% of unemployed uh, now are temporary workers. That number was 75 to 80%, and it was 7.7 million. I don't see why that yeah. trend can continue. That's the point I'm making. I, I don't, I'm not sure there's like an intellectual disconnect. Why that trend can continue. A lot of temporary layoffs will go back to work. I think a lot of people believe you can't extrapolate this out too far because we've had to slow down or reverse the reopenings elsewhere, Larry. And for that reason, many people think more help is needed. This is what the president had to say in the last 24 hours when he was asked about more direct payments for individuals. He said, I support it, but it has to be done properly. And I support actually larger numbers than the Democrats. So that doesn't sound like a consideration anymore. It sounds like the president's made a decision. Is that a fair characterization, Larry? Well, no, I don't think final decision has been made at all. Uh, the president has always favored that, but he wants it to be done in a very smart way and in a targeted way. So I think the shape of any kind of package is still very much up in the air. Look, he has emphasized a number of programs. Now, again, negotiations won't uh, formally begin uh, until after the recess, July 4th recess. He's talked about payroll tax cut. He's talked about... Um, uh, Re-employment uh, benefits and bonuses because we don't like the $600 uh, plus up on unemployment. It's a disincentive to work. He's talked about helping the restaurant industry, the tourism industry, the entertainment industry uh, with better uh, business write-offs. He's talked about capital gains. He's talked about investment write-offs. There's still a very large package here, and you know we won't know until we go into these negotiations. So he's right. Uh, everything's on the table, yeah. or many things are on the table. It's just a question of shaping it and do it smart. I thought the original rescue package was very smart. I don't know if everything has to apply all over again. We'll see. We assess the economy. That's the key point. Well, let's assess the data. What's the evidence that the enhanced unemployment benefits have been a disincentive to return to work? Well, right now, I can only give you anecdotal evidence. Uh, I hear this. A lot of us hear this. Secretary Mnuchin hears this. Um, Gene Scalia at Labor. So many business people have said to us, 
particularly the smaller businesses, particularly in some sense the most vulnerable uh, to the pandemic, the restaurants, the small stores and shops, they can't hire people back because the unemployment benefits are very generous. Now, I happen to think the generous unemployment package was probably a good thing at the beginning of this pandemic uh, when, we put it, uh, when we put it on the table in, in, in mid-March and late March, okay? Working with the PPP program, payroll protection, I think the unemployment compensation could be a good thing. But now that moment has passed. We're moving into the reopening, and as these numbers show, spectacular jobs numbers, people are starting to move back. They want to go to work. So I think we have to look at this a little differently now. And I think reemployment benefits probably will help fill the bill. And those two have to be targeted to the right people uh, who may be uh, we, having trouble getting a job or competing with the unemployment at 600. It'll be a better story for the small businesses. It'll be more manageable. They'll be able to afford people. That's the key point. Larry, unfortunately, you and the team have only given me another 60 seconds for this interview, which is unfortunate because I have so much to cover with you. So let me get to China. I caught up with Ambassador Bolton in the last 24 hours. In the Wall Street Journal in the last couple of weeks, he referred to Secretary Mnuchin as a panda hugger. You came off lightly. You were called a free trader. But he said there is an intellectually fractured approach to th all things China. He said that the president was leaning on President Xi to get the best possible outcome to lean on states and buy soybeans, etc., to help him win an election. They were his words, that the President of the United States was leaning on a foreign leader to help win the election. Now, Larry, my question is, at the moment with Hong Kong in the news and the likes of Secretary Pompeo going out there and making a lot of noise about how hard you will be on China, how can we take that seriously when a former employee of this administration is going around saying that all the President wants is for President Xi to help him win the next election? Well, I, I just say I haven't read Miss Bolton's book. Uh, many people who were at that dinner uh, in Japan completely disagree and say that that was an unfactual remark. Okay, that's what I know. Uh, China is a huge problem. We are engaging with them on trade, but what they are doing in Hong Kong, as well as other problems, becomes a larger and larger difficulty in our relations as Secretary Pompeo and National Security Advisor uh, O'Brien have said time and time again. I want to pivot to a much better story. July 1, the USMCA trade deal went into place. That is a hugely important pro-growth job-creating trade deal, which will help ag workers and farmers and manufacturers, and the blue-collar boom can re-arise. We've got currency stability. We've got intellectual property protections. It's a tremendous deal. I don't know why it doesn't get more coverage. Uh, the leaders are probably going to come here next week to celebrate it with President Trump. USMCA is a solid winner, and it will be pro-growth. And by the by, it will add to growth next year after I think we have a strong second half. And that's looking forward, and I don't see anything reasons block that. As long as people know, and I'll end with this, John. People know they must yeah. exercise best practices. Don't forget the guidelines, okay? The masks, uh, the distancing, the testing, and the personal hygiene are important to mitigate this uh, higher flashpoint in the Southwest. It's not necessarily nationwide. It's a few states in the Southwest. Use those mitigation best practices, and we will get out of that, Morris, and we will grow this economy in spectacular fashion. 
Larry, I'm not sure how we got from leaning on foreign leaders to wearing a mask, but I'm pleased that is the administration's approach at the moment to wear a mask. Larry, I would talk about USMCA, but unfortunately, because of your team, I've got to cut this interview short, and hopefully we can pick up where we uh, end this another time in the next couple of weeks. Larry Cudlow there, National Economic Council Director. Right now, we have to look systemically at the systematic multi-strategy approach of BlackRock. And we can do that <laughs> with Jeffrey Rosenberg. He joins us now, hugely prodigious on the dynamics of the market and how it folds back into fixed income. Jeff, let me get out front of your next July note. What is the distinction right now in bond dynamics that has your attention? Well, on the, on the bond dynamic side, away from the payroll report, you know, it, it's, it's really about yesterday's news and it's about the discussion around yield curve control or what the Fed wants to call it, yield curve targeting, because the front end of the yield curve is pinned at zero. There's no doubt about that. The uncertainty in the bond market is about the shape of the yield curve as you move further out in the maturity. That's really where monetary policy and the uncertainty is centered because you have these two great unprecedented pressures on that curve. On the one side, the fiscal policy that Jonathan just talked about, uh, support for the economy, for financial markets is being funded in the treasury market. And it is an historic expansion in the amount of supply of debt. On the other side is the <clears throat> Fed that right. has said up till now for markets functioning, they're going to uh, expand the balance sheet to maintain that market functioning. So we're going to start to pivot away from that market functioning conversation to a conversation around QE, around LSAPs, around further accommodation. And so in the bond market, that's where all the uncertainty lies. It's about the shape right. of the curve, about yield curve targeting. When the market moves, we do more data checks for you. Futures up 37, Dow futures up. It's a round number, so I'll mention it. 400, up 400 points. Right up buttressed on 26,000 on the Dow. The VIX comes in a big stick, 1.66 uh, points, 26.96 on the VIX. Jeff Rosenberg's uh, bond market's asleep. Uh, Two-year yield, 0.16%. Jeff doesn't care about the 10-year or the 30-year. I look, Jeff Rosenberg, at the bond dynamics here and come on, equity market up, looking out to 2021. Is there a risk here that the bond market looks out to 2021 and all of a sudden it's yield up, price lower? Possibly. You know, if we're talking about the back end of the curve and that's, you know, where you're just highlighting there's no movement in the front end of the curve because that's all pinned, you know, it is really going to be about whether or not we've had success on the virus and the combination of fiscal and monetary policy getting success around inflation expectations. Very hard to see that today at historic low levels of inflation and inflation expectations. But if you're going to have a scenario where you could have the bond market up and the equity market up, getting back to a little bit of inflation could be a positive. It's a tricky conversation because there could be a slippery slope from a little bit of inflation being good to a little bit of inflation being uh not good. And so that's going to be that further out 2021 dynamic. Certainly not the dynamic today in terms of inflation and inflation fears. But remember, this is the goal, fighting inflation 
from below, meaning we have too little inflation. So if there's going to be higher interest rates, it might be welcomed by the Fed in a little bit steeper of, of a curve, pricing in a little bit higher inflation expectations. Jeff, on a day like today, we're getting all this data with respect to the U.S. labor market. Would you trade on any of it? You know, I, I think that Mike McKee had the, the framing of the data exactly right, that this is old news. It's good news, but it's news that it was already reflected in prices. And we've <clears> moved beyond the kind of early June market to, in, on, in a high-frequency basis, really having the debate in market prices about the next payroll report, which is if you look at this one, you know, the biggest category of improvement is leisure and hospitality. It was down over 7 million in, in, in April. It was up in May. It's up today over 2 million. That's going to go down in July if these shutdowns, if the spread of the virus remains uncontained. And that's what the market yeah. focused on in the high frequency data. So I think this is a little bit of good news, but not news to move the market. So, Jeff, this is what surprises me. You're saying it was priced in and people are looking to the potential bad news going forward. The higher frequency data that we got, the 830 uh, release, was the initial jobless claims data, which was worse than expected, with more than 1.4 million jobless claims coming in. And with the ongoing, uh, the ongoing claims also coming in higher than expected, why is the market focusing more on the upside surprise in the June jobs report when that is farther backward looking than the initial jobless claims, which point toward an acceleration of reclosure? Well, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. I think it's really important to remember just the scope of flows that we're talking about here. So these are unprecedentedly large flows into the labor market and out of the labor market. So when you're looking at that 4.8 million number, that's a net number of, of maybe 15 million uh, leaving uh, and, 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 or, or 10 million leaving and 15 million entering. And so these are really, really large gross flows. And inside of that, the scope of uncertainty is just, you know, we are, we really don't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. Remember the range in the yeah. Bloomberg survey was, was, was minus 500,000 to plus 9 million. I mean, no one really knows how to forecast these flows right. in employment. So, so 1.427 on initial jobless claims versus, you know, that survey, it's within the margin of error. And that's why you're not really seeing the market reacting <clears throat> to that higher initial jobless claims. It's more the story of this report, which is the, the, the story of June, economy mm -hmm. reopening, flows back into, into the economy, big increases in retail, leisure and hospitality, the changes, yeah. Jonathan highlighted, the decline in hourly earnings is a reflection of, of the labor force starting to redistribute back to the lower wage workers that were most harmed. So all of that is consistent with what I think we were pricing in back in early June. Jeff Rosenberg, one final question, and I'll keep it sort of philosophic here on a sleepy uh, summer Thursday. The Powell put has never been more putty than the put is right now. Is this a normal bond market? I mean, it's almost like the system's rigged by central bank action. Are you working systematically within a normal bond market? No, 
It's a really good question, Tom. And, and you know, you read the minutes, and they, they talk a lot about the historical precedents. So it's it's not normal in any sense of what we've thought of as normal functioning of the bond markets. We have had experiences with yield curve control, with financial repression in the United States. It was the aftermath of World War II up until the 51 Treasury Fed Accord. That is the period that is more like where we are today. So when you think about the Treasury market and you think about the functioning of risk-free rates in our financial markets as a base for understanding financial market pricing, you really have to reassess your assumptions from a systematic point of view. We have to relook at what's in the data, what's underlying the data that we see, and how that changes when the fundamental underpinnings of the structure of the Treasury rates are now really pinned at zero, the zero lower bound, and we're going to debate over the next couple of months how far out that control or that targeting moves out the curve. Mm-hmm. But to answer your question, this is absolutely a very different environment than anything in the, in the post-51 well, uh, environment. Jeff Rosenberg of BlackRock, thank you so much. Today, all about the jobs data coming in much better than expected. Let's dig a little bit deeper with Jay Bryson, uh, Wells Fargo chief economist. I'll speak slowly, Jay, for you because I know you're a a graduate and a PhD graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and as a Dukey here, as a Dukey alumni. I'll I'll speak a little bit slowly, okay, for you, doctor. So, Jay, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. What do you make of this jobs data here? Is this just kind of catching up as we kind of reopened here? Or do you see anything a little bit deeper in there? Well, so yes, there is uh, some uh, catching up that, uh, to, be, to be done here. Um, recall that we lost between you know February and April, we lost 22 million jobs. Yep. Um, now we have gotten about 7 million back. So, you know, as the economy reopened in, you know, in May and, and June, this is what you're kind of seeing, you know, here. Um, I, I think it's going to be interesting when we get to this July report because, you know, if there's any bad news here this morning, and, and I don't want to stress that, but, you know, initial jobless claims remain high, continuing jobless claims remain high, and we all know that some states have started to go into reverse um, recently in terms of reopening. And so these big employment gains um, are probably behind us at this point. Jay Bryson with us, and wonderful to have you with us, Jay, today. Futures up 40. Dow futures continue to advance up 439, 26,016 on the Dow, almost in two big figures on the VIX, 26.68. Jay, when I saw the numbers, and I get the idea that this is as good as it gets, and now we really learn the cost of this pandemic, great. Will economists over the weekend, particularly at Wells Fargo, will they readjust the level, the percentage of unemployment rate we're going to see at the end of the year, or will they just simply bring it in closer? If these are better numbers, is the recovery of December now the recovery of October? Well, yeah, I I think, Tom, that there is something to to be said of that. I mean, it's interesting when you look at the technical details here, what what the the, uh, BLS has been saying is that there's been people who've been misclassified um, up until this point. That is, when the BLS calls these people and asks them questions, these people are saying, yes, I'm on payroll. I didn't work work this week, 
uh, because of, quote, other reasons. You know, it's because of the pandemic. They were, they were furloughed from their jobs. And, and so when you calculate the unemployment rate, these people were considered to be employed, um, but they really weren't. They were really furloughed. Um, and so there was some sense that that was, temp- that was bringing down the unemployment rate by too much. And what we, we've learned with this June report is that misclassification error is a lot lower. So this 11.1% unemployment rate seems to be closer to you know the, quote, true unemployment rate at this point. Yeah. And so we're probably not going to get a bounce back up. And so, yeah, I would think that we, we are already pretty low in terms of our unemployment rate at the end of the year. So I don't know if we're going to be making a lot of adjustments yeah. to that. But I could see other shops right. bringing their unemployment rate numbers down. Those sirens you hear, folks, we welcome all of you worldwide. That is the North Carolina State Police running to the rescue of how we have someone from Duke and North Carolina, UNC, <laughs> on at the same time. At the same time. That's what that those is, sirens are. That's right. Just a little, you know, trying to pre- prevent a little bit of a, a issue here. Jay, you know, it's interesting here. What is your sense of kind of the underlying health of the uh, labor market here? I mean, I, again, we kind of had a couple of months here where we came back better than expected. But as we shake out to the other side of this thing, it looks like we're having some significant resurgence in some key markets. I think about California, Texas, Florida. Those are key labor markets. Do you expect to see kind of some less than good news over the next month or two? Yeah, so if I was given a letter grade, you know, the unemployment or the health of the economy, the labor market back in February would have been an A. Where are we now? We're, you know, kind of at a C. And, and I understand that Duke a C is a really good grade there, <laughs> but you know, for most of us, it's kind of mediocre. See that, Tom? Um, and you know, so um, yeah, we have, as we said earlier, we have gotten the bounce uh, from furloughed workers coming back, but there are probably millions of businesses that aren't coming back. They've closed for good, and those people aren't going to go back to a job anytime soon, and so. You know, by the end of next year, you know, we're still thinking the unemployment rate is going to be at 6%. Um, and in February, it was 3.5%. I mean, we're not going back to that anytime soon. And so, yeah, you know, we're moving in the right direction. Things are getting are better, but there's still going to be millions <clears throat> of Americans who are going to be unemployed. Yeah. They're probably going to be unemployed for a long period of time. It's too short a time. Jay Bryson, we've got to do this again soon. Uh, Jay Bryson, Wells Fargo, thank you uh, so much. This is a year you could pack it in, but that was never the spirit of Arthur Fiedler. And I'm going to go back, folks, to my childhood. (laughs) Keith Lockhart doesn't know this, but I was weaned, absolutely weaned on the Boston Pops. I would sit in Swellesley Hills. My grandparents had that 1812 Tchaikovsky Overture from the, I think it was the Minnesota Orchestra, and I was ordered at gunpoint to listen to it (laughs) six times a day around July. And then something happened. Arthur Fiedler from 1930, an institution, he had the audacity to get old. Paul, this was like Williams to Yastrzemski. It was that bad. I have the clearest memory of Keith who he came in under the greatest pressure of Anybody, I, I'm sure of anybody, maybe when Bernstein was throwing up New York Philharmonic. Other than that, no, this was the toughest 
shoes to fill in the history of classical music. And Keith Lockhart absolutely nailed it with a Boston Pops 20-some years ago. We're thrilled he could join us uh, right now. Keith, what was it like, the first Pops, when you had to step into those shoes? <laughs> well, hi, Tom. Hi, Paul. Uh, you left out that other guy, John Williams, in between uh, Arthur and myself. Yeah, well, he went off uh, to Hollywood so and made movies. So, yeah, well, you know, but he, he was, he, whatever happened to John Williams, yeah, exactly. Um, it was, uh, my first season was 1995, so this would have been my 26th, 4th of July. And uh, I've, I, it all went by in a blur. I started in May with concerts. I did probably 35 concerts before the 4th of July, but I don't remember any of them because I was just too busy, you know, watching my world turn upside down. But I came out to the 4th. I think it's really the first moment I noticed because I walked out onto that stage on the hat shell, the Esplanade, yeah. and saw a sea of people. And even the people I couldn't see, because you can't see 500,000 people. They can't all sit close <laughs> enough for you to see them. Um, and you could feel, like, the humanity, that, that, that incredible concentration. And I walked out on that stage briskly to the center to take a bow, and I was thinking to myself, whoa, what have you done now? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you look at this, Keith, and of course, this year is so different, folks. We've pieced together the greatest hits of before because you can't get the crowd together as well. What do you do with the orchestra? I mean, what do you do this year to keep the cellos away from the violins because of the pandemic and all? How are you going to handle that? Well, this year we are not. Uh, there's no live. There's no live performance of the Boston yeah. Pops. There's no way we, we. You know, we announced it about a month ago, but honestly. You know, by late March, we were looking at each other going, this thing's going to happen. Uh, you know, nobody is going to green light 500,000 people in the audience and 80 people on a tiny stage, 100 people on a tiny stage. Yeah. So we started looking at what to do, and we decided to do a retrospective concert that will air on Bloomberg at 8 o'clock on 4th of July on all your platforms. And uh, it is some of the best moments, greatest uh, guest artists we've had over the last three years of content, which really gives us an A-list like you wouldn't believe, because we could never have afforded to have all those people on the same year. Uh, but it's new uh, introductions uh, that I have done along with uh, the Bloomberg hosts for the telecast. We shot them on an eerily empty hat shell uh, a week <laughs> ago to put into the show, and some new content uh, that is reflective of the time we're in, a uh, recording of Summon the Heroes that was done virtually with uh, all the orchestra members in their basements. And a new socially distanced performance uh, between me and an amazing gospel singer named Bernice King that I hope will really stick in people's minds. Keith, how how are your musicians faring here? I mean, it's been uh, you know several months here. They've obviously not been able to get together as an orchestra. How are you keeping in touch with them? How are they doing? What's going on there? Well, this is you know this is a tough time for a lot of people, but the performing arts industry has been particularly badly hit because there is simply no outlet, no viable outlet yep. right now. Um, people talk about coming back and having capacity controls in the houses and things like that, but you've got to understand that the arts were a marginal business at best um, before all of this, and you can't make the numbers work at a 30% house capacity. Uh, so we have a situation, the, the Boston Symphony and Boston Pops have hunkered down and have been furloughs on the staff, and they agreed to reduction of all those full-time players, but the people you normally see on the um, Esplanade on the 4th of July are all freelancers who work for us, and they have all been uh, yeah. cut loose for the moment. So it is, it's, a very, it's a very difficult time, in some cases an existentially difficult time for a lot of my colleagues and friends. Keith Lockhart, to look worldwide, and of course the leadership of the Boston Symphony 
uh, for years. I mean, truly, folks, decades, if not generations. If you were to read Gramophone Magazine or the others of the classical industry, right now, what do we need to do to get the kids engaged in the expanse of classical music? What is, you know, with all your experience, all of our listeners want to know, how do I get my kids interested in this? What's the Lockhart prescription? Well, I would say two things. One of them is that the whole industry, especially us at the Boston Pops, have really taken a giant step forward in terms of our virtual presence and our ability to reach people virtually. The online presence of the Boston Pops and the Boston Symphony has grown immensely, uh, you know, many fold over these last three months. And that's a tool that we can continue to use to bring people to live performance, which is our ultimate goal. And it's obviously a tool by which our younger people get the vast majority of their stimulation, good or bad. Um, And the other thing I'd say to everybody, and this is in the face of, you know, a lot of school districts are going to have a hard time with this. People are going to be laying off specialists. Participation is the biggest, uh, is the biggest key to uh, a, an, an audience of people who are interested in, uh, in the great things like the performing arts and like music. Uh, giving your kid violin lessons when they ask for them, supporting them when they want to play the trumpet, having them play in the school band, the school orchestra, sing in the choir. It's mm-hmm. just like baseball wouldn't survive if none of us had ever played baseball. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's something you really have to have an appreciation for what's going on on the stage to really be eager to find out more about what's in it. So I would say that yeah. when people are looking at the easy things to cut, like arts programs, that they should think very carefully about that. Yeah. From Arthur Fiedler to John Williams to Keith Lockhart, thank you so much, Keith Lockhart. We really look forward to the Boston Pop across all of the Bloomberg platforms. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.